Hello and welcome to another podcast in this time of social distancing. We are now addressing the second amended best practice uh, with respect to the governor's executive order. And as we hinted and promised in the last podcast, uh, where we were going to wait to address the expiration of that, well, now we're addressing the expiration of that. This is also the first podcast where we're talking about the expiration of the uh, the Federal CARES Act. Uh, So it is important to keep in mind, um, as we're listening to this discussion, that uh, the governor's executive order delayed evictions in certain circumstances, whereas the Federal CARES Act prohibited the filing of eviction actions for those properties that were subject to uh, the CARES Act. And as with the last podcast, and we're not going to repeat the the beginning of the executive order uh, best practice, you can listen to that podcast. It's in this feed. Uh, We're going to build on that one. So if you haven't listened to that one before, please listen to it before you listen to this one. Uh, We're joined again by uh, two preeminent JPs, uh, the existing Justice of the Peace of the Year, Anna Huberman from Country Meadows Justice Court, and the current Michael J. Ryan winner of Judicial Excellence Award, uh, Gerald Williams of North Valley. And in the packet, you'll find a number of materials including uh, the governor's executive order, the Federal CARES Act, uh, the one-page summary of the best practice, the best practice, uh, we, and several other forms that uh, the best practice committee either updated or created. And we'll discuss those again at the end. Uh, you'll find the COJET certificate at the end of the packet. If you want COJET credit, please print that, sign it, and return it to Esther. And um, you'll find the materials, as always, in the Hightail Judicial Resource uh, site. So let's turn to the the second amended best practice, and we'll start on page 5. The changes before 5, our previous draft had the uh, governor's executive order expiring on July 23. Uh, the general consensus now is that it should be July 22, so we did change that expiration date to July 22. Uh, and that, and other that, that and changing the title of the best practice, those were about the only changes we made before page 5. Page 5, we do talk about the expiration. So again, the executive order expires on July 22. The Federal CARES Act expires on July 25. And there are, are two, uh, there is a proviso there. One or both of those can be extended. Um, and we are proceeding under the assumption that they're not going to be extended, that these deadlines are approaching, and they're approaching quickly, and that's why we're addressing them. Uh, we do expect that there are going to be between 3,000 and 5,000 new evictions filed in Maricopa County alone when those protections expire. Uh, In addition, there's uh, outstanding cases and writs to resolve. So uh, we are going to have a huge uh, tsunami of cases hitting Maricopa County. The Supreme Court Administrative Order 2020-79 does uh, does, um, exclude time for court processes uh, 
for eviction matters. That expires on August 1st. It is possible that that deadline will also be extended. We're going to proceed on the assumption that it isn't and it expires on August 1st. So the first thing that our courts have to do is try to decide how we're going to handle uh, this flood of cases and uh, what we have suggested in, in to ensure that people get the time that they're entitled is that we schedule no more than 25 cases an hour and no more than three hours a day uh, so that judges don't get burned out and judges can devote the time and energy and uh, appropriate uh, consideration of the cases for all of the people involved. Uh, one of the things that we can do as well is do that initial call in and, and one of the ironies that we've had is uh, with uh, the virtual courtrooms we're getting more participation on behalf of the tenants which is wonderful. Uh, it's also going to take a little longer to resolve those cases. Uh, is we can make that first initial appearance a pure triage uh, and um, if it's going to be set for a hearing, set that uh, on a different day. We can double calendar and bring in pro tems uh, who can do virtual hearings in hearing rooms uh, while the pro tem, uh, while the Justice of the Peace is continuing to do their regular calendar in their courtroom. That's just one of the options. We have 26 different courts and each court can decide the best way that um, that they're going to schedule and resolve these cases. Uh, so we cut the number of cases that are coming in into three broad categories. Uh, the first are new eviction cases that were not filed because of the pandemic or that were precluded by the CARES Act. The second group are cases where landlords obtained judgments but did not obtain writs. And the third are cases with judgments and writs but enforcement of the writ was delayed. And so to talk about that first category, uh, I'll turn it over to Judge Huberman. And so we're now on page six of the best practice. Thank you. Um, so I'm going to start off by talking about cases that have not yet been filed, but only because the landlord has chosen not to file them previously, not because they are under the protection of the CARES Act. That will be, um, we'll, we'll consider those cases separately. So the, the cases may not have been filed for many reasons. Um, there have been um, many landlords out there willing to work with tenants, have been setting up payment plans, have been giving um, uh, breaks or, or whatever it is to the tenants and have been working hard to keep tenants in their homes. Um, so it's possible that that is one reason that they haven't been filed. Another reason could be that because they knew that the tenant would be invoking the protection of the governor's order, that it made no sense for them to file an eviction that was going to go nowhere and they're just sitting on their case waiting for that executive order to expire. We don't know. Um, we do expect that um, from our understanding, those 3,000 to 5,000 additional cases uh, that Charles mentioned that will be filed, um, 
the majority of those cases will probably be CARES Act cases, not cases where the landlord uh, didn't file just due to the pandemic. Uh, but there will be still a significant amount of those cases that have been delayed because of the pandemic. Um, we assume that the 3,000 to 5,000 cases are just the delayed cases, and we have to consider the normal caseload that we would get on a regular month anyways. So if we add those three to 5,000 cases to our regular caseload, we are really looking at a, a large surge in, in filing. Uh, so the first thing that we, uh, that the best practice addresses is that uh, we need to consider that when they start adding up the months of rent that have not been paid, we may have cases that rent hasn't been paid even before March, but even March, April, May, June, and possibly July, um, we could be looking at cases that uh, exceed the jurisdictional limits of the 10,000 uh, or justice court. Uh, we would expect that most landlords would cap the case at 10,000 to keep it in the justice court and not go to superior court. Uh, but that is something that um, the, uh, the JPs will have to consider that exclusive of court costs and interest and attorney's fees that the amount being um, filed for is not over the 10,000 jurisdictional limit. Um, additionally, um, there one of the things that we're encouraging everyone to do is to ensure that there is actually no prior judgment. The idea is that uh, tenants not end up with several judgments against them. It would be better for them to have one judgment uh, that's amended to a higher amount, adding the additional months of rent, and not having a second judgment against them. Uh, some of these situations could be, um, that, and, and, and I can say because I've seen these uh, happen in my court, that they had a judgment for, for example, March and April rent, and at some point the tenants uh, got their unemployment money or they got their stimulus money, and they made a payment on that judgment, but then because they were still without work, fell behind on their rent in May or June, and so now, in the landlord's mind, March and April have been paid and they're coming to file a due eviction on May or June, for example. And the, the, what would happen in that situation is that now the tenant would have two judgments against them uh, on their record and not just one, when it's actually part of the same situation. So the courts could do their own ISIS search to make sure that those parties did not have a previous judgment, um, or at least ask the landlord to avow um, that they have not filed the previous judgment. Uh, I have resolved some of those cases by um, asking them just to vacate the previous judgment if it's already been paid for, and then just proceed with the due judgment. Or the other option is to keep that old judgment in place and uh, request that the landlord uh, file an amended, a request to amend the judgment to add the new month's rent. Uh, <coughs> I, I think that once the landlord has paid for the filing fees and the attorney's fees for the second judgment, uh, they might be more willing to actually vacate the previous judgment 
and proceed with the new judgment. And then lastly, in this section of the best practices, uh, we address the calculation of late charges. And uh, I use that term loosely because we actually um, do not uh, take a position as to the late fees, kind of leaving that up to each court. Uh, the indication is that um, the judge should keep in mind that it was most likely not the plaintiff's choice to delay the filing of the eviction action um, in terms of uh, excluding all late fees because a lot of courts uh, usually uh, cap late fees at two months of late fees and in this case you could have several months and that the case wasn't filed because the landlord was uh, being uh, just, just not taking care of his case but because he wasn't going to get the outcome that he needed at the time. On the other hand, the tenant did not default by choice either uh, if they were affected by the COVID situation, losing their jobs or whatnot. Um, so in truth is we just did not take a position and left that up to the judges um, as to how they were going to deal with late fees. Uh, be aware, I know that now uh, Judge Williams is going to address the cases that were delayed by the CARES Act. Um, but just to be clear, the CARES Act does not allow uh, late fees to be applied. So if it is the case under the CARES Act, the, the, the judge needs to be very cautious to understand what type of case it is because late fees are not allowed in those cases. Okay, Judge Williams. Thank you. Um, I'm going to discuss the, the next category. The next category are eviction actions that were delayed by the CARES Act. Um, just by way of refresher, the, the CARES Act applies to uh, residential lease agreements that are governed under public housing or uh, perhaps more significantly for our purposes, anything with a federally backed mortgage behind it. The, the CARES Act eviction filing prohibition ends on July 25th um, because the CARES Act requires a 30-day notice on non-payment of rent evictions covered then they won't be filed until August 26th. Um, but uh, there's some confusing language in the CARES Act. It's, it's not very long. It's uh, part of a, a much bigger piece of legislation, but the, the part that deals with residential eviction action uh, requires uh, a 30-day notice to vacate, and there's been a lot of discussion as to what that 30-day notice to vacate means. Um, it's not specifically referenced in the Act, um, but there's a HUD notice, a frequently asked question HUD notice, that's available online called Home Investment Partners Program FAQs. Um, it's last updated May 1st, 2020, and it asks specifically, one of the questions is, during the moratorium period, May owners evict tenants for lease violations that are not related to non-payment of rent, fees, or charges. And according to HUD, it says, yes, the CARES Act moratorium does not apply to evictions based on violations of permitted lease terms other than non-payment of rent or other fees, penalties, and charges. So if 
if the law is read um, very, very strictly, um, it, it could be viewed as saying if the a tenant stabs the property manager, <clears throat> then they have to give a 30-day notice. But I think every, everyone would be in agreement that that result is, is somewhat absurd. Um, Congress didn't really clarify when they passed it, but according to HUD, um, this 30-day notice applies only to non-payment of rent cases. It doesn't apply to other type of cases, and that's uh, that's a critical point there that's been the subject of, of quite a bit of discussion, especially this week. Um, and as Judge Huberman already noticed um, and already referenced, the you cannot have late fees or any other kind of penalty related to non-payment of rent um, if it's a, a CARES Act property. In Arizona, we haven't required landlords to give some kind of written uh, pleading or state in their pleading that it's not a CARES Act property. Some other states have done that. What many judges are just doing is asking the landlord attorneys are asking the, the landlords themselves that are representing themselves, is this a CARES Act property? As, as part of your standard of vows, can you um, affirm to the court that this property that's the subject of this eviction case, it's not a CARES Act property? And that's going to become a lot more important um, toward the end of July. But that's, that's how we're doing it right now. Uh, at least in Arizona, there may be a, a movement to require a more formal type of notice. But but right now, we're we're just in a mode of asking the the landlord attorneys to to affirm that. And then the next category is residential eviction judgments that have been issued that don't yet have a writ filed, and that's back to Judge Huber. All right. So, uh, the, the filings of eviction actions since the executive order went into effect has been reduced in Maricopa County by over 65%. So, uh, the, the number of uh, judgments that are out there um, are not that many, at least not as many as we would normally have had. Uh, but we do uh, think that there are several judgments that have been signed, but that the landlord did not apply for the writ of restitution. Uh, it could be because they received the written notice from the tenant explaining their COVID reason for delay, and so they just didn't think it was worth uh, applying for a writ that wasn't going to get served. Or again, it could be because they're still working with the tenants uh, to try to uh, get payments, the, uh, even if they were uh, getting lesser amounts. Uh, for whatever reason, those are judgments that are out there um, and that a writ has not been applied for. Uh, one of the biggest uh, misconceptions out there is that uh, judgments expire after 45 days if a writ has not been applied for. Um, that is not the case. Uh, the rule, uh, which is actually 
written out in the best practice, um, it does allow for a landlord to request a writ even after 45 days have passed of the issuance of the judgment. But if that is the case, they have to explain the reason for the delay. Uh, so the expectation here is that the explanation would be that they did not uh, proceed with the risk because of the whole COVID situation, and they are now wanting that risk to issue. Um, so going back to the previous amendment to the best practice, uh, one of the major concerns that we had was what is the situation or what is the relationship between the tenant and the landlord um, during this period and uh, we considered that the lease remained in effect. Uh, that was clearer on cases where there was a delayed risk, not as clear on this case as where there's a judgment but um, there was no writ ever uh, issued. Uh, so if we go back to just the regular Arizona Residential Landlord-Tenant Act, the way we would have applied it uh, before this whole COVID situation, um, in any situation where the writ has been delayed and had not been requested within those 45 days, the judge would go back to determine if they consider that the... the uh, that the lease had been reinstated somehow. And so we believe that that needs to be the situation now also to determine if there has been a reinstatement of the lease in the time uh, that the writ was not, that the writ had not been requested. Uh, I, I think that this might create some issues because uh, the original judgment, if it was paid off, and then new months came out that had not been paid, uh, unless the landlord actually files a motion to amend the judgment, it would be difficult to determine if the lease was reinstated or not. I mean, I think this uh, will definitely turn into a factual issue, and so the best practice indicates that uh, a, a hearing should be set uh, when the when the landlord is requesting uh, the writ when the 45 days have passed. So um, they would come explain uh, the reason for the delay, and then the judge would have to determine if they considered that lease had been reinstated in that interim or not. Um, and possibly if the lease was reinstated, if a new five-day notice was necessary for future non-payment or how uh, that would proceed. Um, if, the, if the landlord uh, could potentially uh, request, together with the writ or in a separate motion, to amend the judgment to add future rent, uh, that was not included in the original judgment. Uh, again, uh, that motion should be uh, given notice to the tenant, allow the tenant the possibility to come, and uh, then again, 
to determine what amounts have been paid and not paid and how the judgment would be amended. Um, if there is an amended judgment, then we would have a new judgment date with a new writ date. And so <clears throat> then we wouldn't have the issue of the 45 days of the past judgment. The 45 days would only occur if there is not a motion to amend the judgment. All right, in the last category, uh, the landlord obtained a judgment in a writ, but enforcement of the writ was delayed. Judge Williams? Okay. This is the category that's potentially the most problematic. Um, well, I guess they're all potentially problematic. This is the one where uh, a tenant could be caught <coughs> by surprise. Um, these are judgments where the enforcement of the writ was delayed. So the, the, the landlord filed a motion to compel that said, I don't think the tenant meets the criteria under uh, the governor's order. They don't really have a protected status under the COVID-19 criteria. Um, the writ was denied, or the, the motion to compel was denied. So the tenant is continuing to live in the property. And maybe the judgment is from, you know, April or May, and we get towards the end of June, and you have a writ that's sort of like lying in wait, ready to spring up and and be served on the, the tenant with almost no notice. Um, tenants generally have at least five days notice that they're going to be evicted. Uh, in this case, they would be living in a property for potentially several months and not know a writ was coming until the constable knocked on their door. Um, a writ should not be a, a surprise to a tenant. That, that's, the system's not set up to just have someone knock on the door and say, okay, you have to you know, grab all your stuff and grab your medicine, grab your tools, grab your computer, grab a change of clothes and leave. Um, that may be what unfortunately happens sometimes, but the tenant should have some kind of idea that that knock is coming. Um, under our best practices, uh, the constables have agreed to make every effort for, for cases in this situation to give the tenant at least 48 hours notice. They, they may be giving them more, they may be giving them less, but they, they agreed to try to at least give two days notice or 48 hours notice. If they're going to serve a writ, that's just sort of been hanging around for a while, uh, essentially waiting for the governor's executive order to expire. The Judge Huberman talked about amended judgments. Um, we, we really think the best practice is, is to allow landlords to file motions to amend judgments. There's, there's nothing in the eviction rules, nothing in the statutes that really talk about amending an eviction judgment because this scenario has never happened before. It wasn't foreseen. The whole point of a residential eviction action, the whole reason these are summary proceedings and move very, very quickly when compared to a regular civil lawsuit is they're geared for the landlord getting possession. And the focus of an eviction action is for the landlord to regain possession. So there would never be any need to amend a judgment because the landlord already has possession. As Judge Huberman brought up in, in these situations, 
the, the legal status of the tenant who remains in the possession of, of the residence while the execution of the writ of restitution has been postponed is, is legally a little unclear. Uh, there's no recognized common law uh, term or category to describe tenants in this situation. As we've talked about in other podcasts, they're not a holdover tenant, they're not a tenant at severance, they're not a t- trespasser, they're not a squatter. If the lease uh, and the tenancy is not, uh, doesn't apply to people that are living um, under the protection of the governor's executive order, then in theory the landlord could uh, cut off power, cut off uh, utilities, not make, re- not make repairs. Uh, it, it just it would be a disaster and it would defeat the whole purpose of an emergency medical uh, executive order. So our best practice committee determined that the only way to merge the executive order of Arizona law was to interpret the order as creating a temporary exception and hold that the residential lease during the time of the executive order was not terminated either until the writ was actually executed or until the tenant returned the keys to the landlord. Doing so further the intent of the executive order and it avoided what, at least in my opinion, is an absurd result of a former tenant remaining in possession of the, the residence without protections of either the lease or the Arizona Landlord Tenant Act. So if the tenant is still there, rent is still accruing, maybe the tenant hasn't paid it, maybe they paid part of it, the, that some mechanism needs to exist then for the, the landlords to legally collect that rent. Um, and we decided the best practice was to let them amend the judgment. Otherwise, the judgment, which would not be helpful to their credit history or their, their ability to get housing in the future. Um, and even if it's a second subsequent lawsuit, that wouldn't help the tenant either. So, because the tenancy continued, even though, even though the eviction judgment was signed, that's that's why we went with this. Um, the authority to do so, again, it's not really envisioned uh, either by statute or by rule, but the rules of procedure for eviction actions, 15C and 15D, allow for post-judgment motions. They just don't say what those post-judgment motions are. They don't necessarily specify them. They're normally for a more traditional reason, but our best practices committee found that that was uh, at least some legal authority where we could look at it and say, okay, this is the best way to get to a good result, and there is some legal authority that authorizes that. The goal, quite frankly, is to have a single court hearing that resolves both any accrued rent through an amended judgment it also sets a meaningful writ date, um, so we don't have judgments lying in wait like a spring trap to, to snare tenants. What we would have then is that the tenant would get some kind of notice that the landlord wants to amend their judgment. They would have a new court date, which they could appear by phone at and raise whatever issue they want. But when the judgment is amended, um, that's a new judgment date so it would be a new red date so at five days after the amended judgment would be the earliest a writ of restitution could be filed so maybe a writ's not even filed but maybe the tenant 
can can work something out with the landlord just like a regular eviction action judgment but it would at least give the tenant five days notice that hey we know you've been living there um since march or april it's the end of june it's the end of july you're going to have to leave now um if, if something can get worked out and so one of the goals of having an amended judgment process is to give the tenants notice that a new writ date could be coming. And if a new writ date, if the amended judgment is granted, then the new writ couldn't be issued prior to five days before the date of the judgment if the basis for the amended judgment is non-payment of rent. So that's, that's what we've come up with so far. These are uh, some types of a moving target, but and we don't know whether the governor's order is going to be extended in full or or in part. Uh, I think we all have private positions on that. But the, in terms of continuing legal education, that's what the JPs in, in Maricopa County are 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 doing now. We're trying to all be on the same page, and that's the whole point of having a, a best practice process to. Well, every judge is different. Every judge is independently elected. Every judge has judicial discretion. We would still like everything to be standardized within reason to to the extent possible. So what happens to you in one courtroom is not drastically different than what would happen to you in a different courtroom. And that that's why we have best practices, and that's why we spend a lot of time in meetings trying to reach consensus. Uh, Charles, I'll throw it back to you. Okay. So we just want to reemphasize, going back to the CARES Act, the 30-day notice. The notice cannot be given to the tenant until the expiration of the CARES Act. And so if that is not extended, uh, that would be July 25. So they would get a 30-day notice on July 26. The best practice does refer to it as a 30-day notice because the CARES Act refers to it as a 30-day notice. So we would prefer that it say 30 days, that the, the tenant have 30 days to pay off the balance or leave the premises, not just a five-day notice and then have the lawsuit filed 30 days later because the tenant doesn't know that they can still pay up before that deadline. So you know, we do want to make clear that the CARES Act cases wouldn't start to be filed until about August 26 or so. And then Judge Huberman, you wanted to say something? See, I just wanted to add, I mean, one of the things that uh, this pandemic has brought us has been the overuse of the word unprecedented. Uh, this is clearly unprecedented. It's something that, you know, uh, I don't think any of us ever envisioned we would be living through. Uh, I I just want to emphasize that how concerned the benches and the individual judges are to do this correctly and to get this right. Uh, which is why uh, I think that uh, the best practices committee has put in so much work into this and has received so much input from a lot of judges who uh, were not even on the on the committee in the first place, so we don't know 
what the market is going to look like after this. Uh, the, the rental market in in, the, in Maricopa County was uh, very tight before all this started. We don't know uh, what it's going to look like afterwards, how easy it will be for the landlord to re-rent, if the landlord uh, will really want to uh, keep the tenants in their property. Uh, I think that uh, I think that landlords are frustrated because a lot of them have gone many months without receiving any rental income, and no one is at fault here. It was just the situation that everyone was in, uh, and I think that we uh, we're all trying to find the best solution for all parties. And I, uh, echoing back to what Judge Williams said, that uh, we are just trying to. Uh, find a more standardized way and a more standardized solution for all landlords and tenants uh, in the county. And so I would just encourage everyone to, to read the best practice and to uh, understand the provisions and the way that uh, we have interpreted some of the legal issues that were not as clearly laid out um, as they could have been or not. I mean, everything was done very quickly and everything was done with an urgency that maybe didn't allow for some of the things to be resolved in a, in a different manner. Um, but I just wanted to encourage everyone to consider all that. Thank you. And thank you. And we'll conclude by a discussion of the rest of the items that are in your packet. Again, uh, we've included the governor's executive order, the CARES Act, uh, the one-page summary of the best practice, the best practice, and then we start to get into the forms. We have uh, amended the writ of restitution form. There is a box that says Governor's Executive Order 2020-14, and we added a line above the judge's signature that says hearing held in accordance with rule of procedure for eviction action 14B2 on blank date. And that's to emphasize that we do want those writs that are more than 45 days after the judgment to have gone to a hearing. The next page is the eviction action case checklist that Judge Williams uh, created for staff um, several years ago. That has been updated uh, to add the amendments to the rules of eviction procedure that have come in the last couple of years. Uh, we also added a box there to address the recent case of Secure Ventures versus Gerlach that says that justice courts no longer have jurisdiction uh, for evictions following trustee sales. Uh, Judge Williams, did you want to say anything about that form? Not about the form. I just I I I, I, I like that I use it. I encourage everyone to use it. Um, you can uh, delegate it to your court clerk if they're familiar with. Uh, eviction cases and that they can check it but sometimes judges are criticized for how quickly we do default judgments in the in the courtroom um, quite frankly if, if one side's there all the paperwork's in order and you can look and quickly see that the checklist has been run we don't need a lot of time to make that decision that the, if the landlord is or the landlord attorney is there, the tenant's not there, and the paperwork's in order, there's not a lot of deliberative process that goes on that the landlord is probably going to win that case. And so you 
you look and see do the amounts make sense you look to, to cross-reference a couple things if, if you're convinced that the tenant had notice uh, and an opportunity to appear then you, you press forward but that uh, that checklist is a good way to document that all those things were looked at as opposed to uh, people maybe picking up the file six months later and, and wondering if the judge even bothered to consider anything. The next two pages are a checklist for judges, for judicial officers, um, when you're doing that initial appearance. And this is everything that the rules require us to do and a few things that our best practices strongly suggest that we do. Uh, and if we follow a checklist like this, and, and you can adapt it to your preferences, but if you follow this checklist, you're not going to miss anything. Now, this checklist is not written with COVID in the CARES Act in mind. Uh, this is written for uh, all time. So uh, if, in, if the Supreme Court does decide that uh, the plaintiff must verify that the property is not subject to the CARES Act, that's something that you're going to have to add to the checklist. Uh, so just keep that in mind. The final attachment is the frequently asked questions from Housing and Urban Development. That does include the language that the CARES Act is reference to non-payment of rent and, and not to other cases. Uh, so uh, please, uh, again, all of this is subject to change. Uh, please stay on top of your emails. We will keep you up to date with anything that uh, does affect us. Uh, and it is important that we stay up to date and knowledgeable of, of the changes in, in our circumstances and our reality. Judges, do you have anything further? I just want to mention for all our listeners that uh, Charles Adornetto was recognized with an award from the National Association of Counties for his podcast. Um, and so we just want to, um, everyone to understand how fortunate we are to have him uh, providing uh, the education that he does for the bench and for um, all our pro ten judges. So thank you, Charles, and congratulations. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. All right, good luck everybody, stay safe and stay healthy. Now. Now. Come on. Now. Now. <laughs> now. 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 It's not now. No. 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 <laughs>